turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7. Scripture says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can, no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast at what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from him anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful once again to be in, in, with, among your people and in your place of worship and uh, to worship with them together and to exalt Christ. We pray today that uh, we will keep your word. We pray we'll not only take uh, hear it, and we pray we will listen to it diligently. We pray we'll take it to heart. We pray we'll keep it also and obey it, as these people did. Uh, we pray for Mike as he preaches today. You'll bless him in a great way. Holy Spirit will use the word that he preaches to convict all of us. We pray for lost people to come to know Christ. We pray for believers to be strengthened in their faith. We pray in all things that God will be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. We have seen in Revelation 2, 3, 2 and 3, that is, five out of the seven churches showed evidence of real problems. We have talked about the downward spiral that appears to have been evident in these five churches. This, by no means, meant that Jesus had stopped building his church. Jesus was in control of even the declining churches. He was still building his church, and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Today we will see in light, a light in the midst of darkness. The church in Philadelphia showed off their king to the world. You know, if you think back over his, the history of the world, the evilness of the world is obvious, isn't it? Even looking at the professing people of God in the history of the world, sin and depravity have been obvious. One might be tempted to think evil is winning. Why is it that so many even professing, believing churches appear to have this downward trajectory? We can be begin to despair. But beloved, the opposite is true. We should not despair because what this darkness shows is God's glory even more. Now you say, what? How? Listen, 
If everywhere you look, sin is on display, something happens when light shows up on the scene. It's a stark contrast to the world. It stands out. Very much like the stars at night, the light of the stars stands out best when the backdrop of darkness is the backdrop. The same is true of holiness in this world. When faithfulness or holiness is on display, the contrast is stark. And the source of this righteousness also becomes obvious. If any human or if any church reveals holiness and faithfulness, the reason is clear. The Lord Jesus is at work. More than miracles, righteousness on display in humanity screams, God is working because humanity is evil. Do you get this, folks? It makes sense for churches to slide towards sin as time goes along, unfortunately. The enemy seeks to infiltrate anything that reveals the gospel. The devil hates God, and the vast majority of mankind is inherently evil and follows Satan constantly. So when a church arises that exalts the true God and lives holy and faithful lives, God's providential work is evident. Everyone says they are different. Something not from this world must be at work in this church and those people. That's what we have in Philadelphia. This is exactly what we see in this church today. The Lord Jesus was displaying his sovereign grace in this church, and it was undeniable. To give you a little background on our passage, remember we looked at the five churches. We've looked at the first five churches, the doctrinally savvy but loveless church in Ephesus, the suffering servants in Smyrna, the faithful but tolerant of evil in Pergamum, the, divi- the divided church led by an evil prophetess in Thyatira, and the complacent church on the brink of disaster in Sardis. We come today to the sixth church. Let's examine briefly the background for the church in Philadelphia. The city Philadelphia is not the Philadelphia you know of. It's... <laughs> Those that are Eagles fans. <laughs> There's two of you in the room. <laughs> but if you see here, it's in Asia Minor. It would be south of Sardis and east of Sardis a little bit. This name is associated Philadelphia with a word that's used six times in the New Testament. Phileo. It's a word used to describe Christian love between fellow believers sometimes. It's a love associated with the family, family members loving one another, brotherly love. That's why it's called the city of brotherly love. However, the name Philadelphia was chosen for the city long before the letter to the Revelation was written to this church. It was given to the city as a recognition of the loyalty between two brothers and Eight, in, in 189 B.C., so that is not why it's used here. This city was a on a main east-west trade route 
It also served as an imperial post road. So it was truly a gateway between the east and the west. It appears to have had a major Jewish population within the city, as we see from Revelation 3.9. It was also in an area that had a major uh, volcano and lots of activity during the first hundred years after Christ. The city adopted a new name after Emperor, the Emperor Tiberius provided help for the city in rebuilding it, so the name became the New Caesar, not Philadelphia. And this was before the book of Revelation was written, and it later it even, just a little bit after, in the 70s, became known, known as Flavia, or Flavia. So the city, city was known for taking a new name that was based on worldly concepts. But Jesus here uses the older name, associated with familiar love, as he addressed the church. Maybe this was an allusion to the church. The church was a thriving church. This church is arguably the best of the seven churches. Again, there's no condemnation in it. The message from Jesus to the church in Philadelphia is filled with encouragements and affirmations. The church continued for centuries after this letter was written. Today, we're going to see that a thriving church reveals the glorious work of our Lord Jesus in his bride. The Lord's sovereign work in his church is a striking contrast to the world racing towards evil and led by Satan. The reason for this stark contrast is the king was at work in the church and in his servants. We see today what we want more than anything is a relationship with our King where He is shown off as our Sovereign Lord who is giving grace to us daily. The relationship obviously includes three aspects. Christ, the King, the subjects of the King, and the King's promises. Today we're going to look at the striking relationship between Christ the King and His servants in the Church of Philadelphia. Let's look at these features of King Jesus and his faithful subjects in Philadelphia. Let's start with the king's identity. Notice in your Bibles, in verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. King Jesus reveals three traits of his identity here in this first section. He states first that he is holy. He is the set-apart one. He is distinct. He is different from the world. Christ is righteous. Just, kind, loving. He is perfect. He is set apart from this world. He is totally different from this world. He is the stark contrast to this world. Jesus is the holy king that Isaiah recorded in Isaiah 6, where the angels called out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth 
is full of His glory, as Isaiah 6.3 states. So it only makes sense that the holy king will have holy subjects because the king is sovereign over their lives. Oh, please take note of this. If King Jesus is your king, you will look like your king because your king is sovereign over your heart too. He works in you to produce holiness. And that's why this church was characterized by their own king. Again, as Peter stated in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in the ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be or become holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Oh, beloved, this is important. King Jesus is a holy, set-apart king. He is sovereign. And if he's sovereign over his people, then his people will look like their king. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Notice second, he is true. The emphasis Christ in, is here on Christ's genuineness. He is real as opposed to those who are called liars and who were a part of the synagogue of Satan, mentioned later in the verses. Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true King. He is the genuine Messiah who can be relied upon. Oh, this is good news, isn't it? What a glorious God we can trust on in Him. He's a King that's genuine. He's not fake. He's true. He's also shown to be here sovereign, who is having the key of David. This is probably an allusion to Isaiah 22, 20 to 22. In Isaiah 22, Eliakim is the one who had the keys of the king of Hezekiah's day. But here, Jesus stands in stark contrast. He is revealed as the one who has the position of authority to the kingdom of David. He is the supreme power in the messianic kingdom. To the fullest extent, Jesus controls the keys of the Davidic kingdom. One commentator stated this, Christ has regal dominion over the house of David. Jesus alone has the power and the authority to admit subjects or to exclude subjects from his kingdom. This concept of Christ's sovereign authority is further developed in the following phrases. He says that take, this, that take these door metaphors further. Notice he says, the one who opens and no one shuts. Who shuts and no one opens. We'll talk about a very interesting contrast next week when we look at Laodicea. He says, I stand at the door and knock as he mixing up his metaphors. He who opens the door. Wait, I thought Jesus opens the door. Does Jesus open the door? Do we open the door? Yes. But ultimately, he's sovereign. Ultimately, he's the one that opens and shuts doors. Period. Put simple, what Jesus does, no one can reverse. This is very much in contrast to what the unconverted Jewish people were probably telling the believers there in Philadelphia. 
This is a great truth of Jesus' sovereignty over salvation. And it's developed in the next verse. It says, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Jesus further illustrates his sovereign authority in the beginning of that phrase in verse 8. This could literally be translated, Behold, I have given an open door before you which no one can shut. He has given an open door before them. You know, it's funny, this book is often denied and, and, and not read and not studied, Revelation that is, often because of the confusion over eschatology. But it's, it's very interesting to me that this book, out of all the books in the Bible, I would argue is the most about the sovereignty of God in this book. Because it says what God's going to do in the future, and it gives great details. What that means is, is God knows exactly what's going to happen before it happens. With great precision. And this little word given is mentioned over and over and over throughout the book. Given, given, given. Why? Because it is Jesus that gives. He is the sovereign authority that gives the open door before them. And the results of the open door continues on. This concept of giving something implies Jesus is in complete control. The one who owns and controls can give it to someone else, correct? Some say, what is this? What is Christ referring to here with the open door? Some say it's an open door for ministry. But the near context doesn't appear to make this the likely explanation. It would go from explaining how the believers are remaining faithful despite their circumstances to a side note concerning ministry opportunities. Now, you might have heard that before, but it's really not about that. Most likely, Jesus is referring to an open door to the kingdom, to the millennium kingdom for those who are persecuted but are faithful Christians. The messianic kingdom has already been alluded to in the previous verse, in the phrase, key of David. And the emphasis with the keys of David make the messianic kingdom the main focus. You understand that this is not our kingdom here. There is a kingdom coming. Can't wait for that day. That's the one that he opens. Yes, it's an already not yet. It's already spiritually here, but it's not yet also, right? I've seen no Jewish people bowing at the knees of the people in Philadelphia. Have you? But it's referred here. The question is, is was this just spiritualized? No, I don't think so. I think it's an event that have happened. Again, this open door would be a very encouraging concept to be reminded of in light of the struggle they were experiencing from the Jews in their area. The Jews were especially hostile, as mentioned. They were denying the entrance of the Gentiles into the Jewish kingdom to come. This open door promise probably gave assurance that the plots of their adversaries would ultimately not prevail against them because Jesus was the one who was in sovereign control. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension have made sure that the passageway both for Jews and Gentiles can come into the Messianic kingdom through faith in Christ. Jesus is the sovereign over who comes into his kingdom. 
and who is kept out of his kingdom. Nothing in and of ourselves determines whether we enter his kingdom. Only the king's sovereign decision and his providential work. If we walk through the figurative way into the kingdom, it's because Christ Jesus has sovereignly accomplished a great work in our lives. So in review, King Jesus reveals three, these three, three traits about himself. He states he's holy, he's true, and he's in sovereign authority. He's in control of everyone who joins him in his kingdom. Beloved, we need to remember these truths. The church in Philadelphia needed to remember these truths. The church back in Smyrna needed to remember these truths. All of the churches needed to remember these truths. When trials come, when Satan attacks, when the world appears to be crumbling around us, when everything looks like Satan is winning the battle, King Jesus steps up and says, No, I'm holy, I'm true, and I'm sovereign over even who comes into my kingdom and who faces my judgment. We must remember Jesus is holy. He is true. He is sovereign over all. If you don't like this, if you don't like to hear this, then your heart is revealing its propensity to want to be your own ruler. That should be a scary place for you. Do you not like to hear that God is in control? Do you not like to hear that He is the sovereign over you? If that's true, then there's something going on inside your heart. We, want, we should want to submit to King Jesus, correct? And if we don't, there's something wrong with us. I find it interesting that both churches that appear to be faithful to Christ are under attack. Smyrna and Philadelphia. And in both cases, Christ points to that eternal perspective of him, his kingdom, and his sovereign role over his kingdom. And a healthy reminder of him and his coming kingdom is what makes endurance possible. You've heard the phrase, you can be so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. You heard that one before? Well, that's hogwash. To be salt and light in this world, you need to have a heavenly focus. Both of the thriving churches were given a fresh perspective of Jesus and His coming kingdom. This is what must be our focus and what must be our foremost in our minds for us to have any real success in this world. This may not be what the world tells you. But again, much of what the world tells us is garbage and tainted by sin. Tell it like it is. I'm so glad that my eternal destiny is not based on a vote of the American people or a vote in Congress or whether a particular government system remains intact. Our eternity is sealed by the work of Christ, our King. Our eternal future is is in the hands of the one who is the one and only Messiah King. He has made sure that the believer's entrance into the coming millennium kingdom by his atoning sacrificial substitutionary work on our behalf. And he is the one who gives life to the dead servants like us by his sovereign authority. So next we see how we respond to this Christ we know. We see the king's subjects. Notice it states, 
I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Notice King Jesus describes his people in the church in Philadelphia. Their deeds. He says, I know that, notice it says, because, it skips down a little bit, I know your deeds, and then he has a little paraphrase there, because, that should be that, that you have a power. Notice he says, he makes four observations concerning their works. He says, you have little power. Now, what does this mean? Uh, A little influence or power. What does that term or phrase mean? Does it mean in terms of numbers and prominence and authority in their city? Or does it mean little influence in terms of spiritual vitality? In other words, were they a bunch of uh, wimpy, non-faithful believers? Or was it that they were just a bunch of outcasts in a city filled with prominent people? I think it's the second. We know that this is letter is from Jesus to the church, and it gives no condemnation at all. If there was a problem with their spiritual vitality, then Jesus would have given a solution through rebuke like he had in the previous churches. But here there's none of that. So this little power is probably referring to limited numbers and prominence and authority within the city. Beloved, this church was probably filled with a small number of lower class people of the city. It probably did not have a people it did not have people in high places to get their agenda passed. They were probably harassed by a group of Jews who had influence in the city. Put real simple, this was probably a church filled with the weak and unimportant in the city. Jesus is pointing out that despite their lack of influence in terms of the world, they were still faithful. A key characteristic of King Jesus' subjects is not political or social influence in the community. I hope you mark that down. Rather, it is humble service and obedience to the king. Oh, wait until next week. You're going to see the dramatic contrast. A dramatic contrast. The church that our world, especially in American culture, the church that would look at they would say, oh, this is the greatest church. You know what church they would say? Laodicea. But Jesus is looking at these, two, these seven churches. And the last two, he says, I like this one. This is the one that I'm going to affirm. And they really don't have anybody special in there. Those with little power. Not much prominence. It's about the humble servants that obey their king. That's what he's about. Not the ones with power and authority in a city to get what you want done. But actually the suffering ones. The humble ones. Evidence of God's glorious grace is not popularity. Rather, it's holiness. Like the master. Please mark that down. People of little power is typical of people King Jesus has chosen. Like some of the Corinthians, right? In 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world 
To shame the things which are strong. Wow. This goes totally contrary to the way we think in this world. This is totally countercultural, isn't it? James 2.5 states, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of kingdom, which he promised to those whom he loved? Power, prestige, popularity are not what makes a successful church. It's not how much money you have. It's not how much power and authority you have in your community. It's about a humble dependence upon the Lord. That's the only thing that matters. Interestingly, it's often the ones who have little influence in the world that Christ then calls to be his own and have a huge influence in eternity. These are the ones that are going to rule and reign with Christ. These people were obviously not the most well-known people in the city. They had little, if any, political influence in their city. They had a little power, but they were Christ's own. And that is all that really matters, right? Listen, the goal is not to be popular. The primary goal must be holiness and faithfulness to our Lord God for His glory. Then the Lord will care for us in eternity in His kingdom. This Christ, then notice Christ gives a second observation. He says, you have kept my words. You have kept my words. They have faced temptations and trials. They had been presented with opportunities to disobey Christ and His Word, but they had remained obedient. Boy, this is a dirty word in our culture and in our society, right? Obedience. Not this church. Not these people. They had kept His Word. When faced with temptation to sin, they were characterized by obedience. In John eight fifty one. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What's that mean? If you obey, you're going to have eternal life. That's what it means. Why? Because God's grace is at work in that person's life. A key trait of a flourishing relationship with Christ is not power or authority, but obedience to the king's word. A guiding A genuine, abiding relationship with Jesus includes obedience to His Word. It is obedience, listen closely, through dependence upon Him. It is obedience through His divine empowerment. And next we see it's not only obedience, but faithfulness. You have not denied my name. Oh, I want to be... Don't you want Christ to say this about you? This is what I want him to say about me. When I finish my life, I want him to say just this, identical. Over and over again, we see that the traits of a true servant of Jesus is obedience and faithfulness to the Savior. In Christ's estimation, this church was successful, not based on this, their popularity or social influence, but based on their obedience and faithfulness to him. This church had been faced with the test to deny Christ. It could have been in the form of offering of power or prestige, as Satan did to Jesus. 
Again, power, prestige, influence, fame, wealth, these are not what make a successful Christian, contrary to the Word of Faith movement. It's faithfulness to Christ. I confess, under the guise of a successful Christian ministry, many have succumbed to the temptation to compromise their core principles. We hear often of pastors who compromise for a bigger influence. Don't we hear that? This, stre- this stretches to every walk of life. In our society that seeks to be trendy, wants to be liked, desires to be retweeted, and often seeks to be relevant in the secular world, what really matters is being faithful and uncompromising concerning the name of Christ. That's all that matters. Everything else doesn't. Listen, I can get a hundred likes and a hundred happy birthdays, but the only thing that I want to be known for is, is that King Jesus is exalted in my life. All I want. Does my flight in my flesh fight against that occasionally? Absolutely. But the only one worthy of praise is King Jesus. And there is no No room for compromise on the name of Christ in our lives. If we do, we're not His. Beloved, we are going to stand before Christ with our lives. Ultimately, success will be defined not by how big our church is, or even how many people like us, or how many people we know, or how big our 401k is. Success is defined by these characteristics. Dependence, obedience, discipline, stewardship, holiness, sacrifice, and faithfulness to Christ. That's how we know whether we are legit. A blossoming relationship with Christ is revealed by three main components on the human side of the equation. Dependence on the Spirit. Obedience to God's Word. Faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. There's one more, one final observation concerning these faithful subjects in Philadelphia. Notice their endurance. You have kept my word of my perseverance. That you have kept the word of my perseverance in verse 10. The kept Christ word or command or call to persevere. This is the word of Christ for every believer. Abide under for His namesake. Endure under trials. Persevere in your pursuit of righteousness and holiness. Persist in your commitment to truth. This is the life of the believer. We hang on in difficulties for the sake of our King, fame. The good news is is we hang on because He is causing us to hang on. You understand that, correct? We persist in our pursuit of Him because He causes us to delight in Him. We persevere in times of trial because He is preserving us. We work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for He is at work both to will and to do for His good pleasure. This church was characterized by enduring followers of Christ. By the way, notice Jesus exhorts the believers who were enduring to continue to endure. In verse 11, he states, hold fast to what you've already, you already have hold of. In other words, 
We must never be complacent or pursue in our pursuit of Christ. Even the most faithful Christians, the Christians who have endured some of the most excruciating trials, must be constantly encouraged to hang on, hold on, hold on till the end, persevere in the faith, strive to enter the narrow gate through trust and dependence on Jesus till the end. Hold on, believer. When it comes to those who have been dependent upon Him and obedient to Him and faithful to Him to the end, we will enjoy Him forever. Again, this does not mean what we do saves us from wrath, correct? It means that because Christ has saved us and given us new hearts and new lives, and because the Spirit of God is working within us to preserve us, we endure to the end and obey Him. Both are true. Not one or the other. Thus we enjoy the rewards of faithfulness in glory. Endurance is possible, beloved, as we trust in the imminent return of Christ our King. Again, an eternal perspective is a non-negotiable for a fruitful walk with Christ. Hold fast to what you have. Should the main goal of every Christian believer be anything but hold on for Christ's namesake? Jesus, you are all we have of value, so we will hang on to you. That's what our hearts should be saying. Our salvation in you is all we value, so we endure to the end no matter what. I love how my professor, Dr. Thomas, describes this endurance that Jesus is calling for. He said it this way. Thomas used the word tenacity. A Christian must have a doggedness or tenacity to hold on to the gospel to the end. Beloved, we got to be like pit bulls when it comes to hanging on to what we know to be true as revealed in Scripture. Tenacious. Persistent. Determined. Steadfast, not weak, not timid, not wimpy. Holding on to the truth because it matters. Good test of this is where do you go when you face temptations or trials? Is it to Christ or away from Christ? There are evil ones out there that want you to take want to take you down. They desire to steal your crown. They want you to abandon the faith. They are determined to take others down with them. So be wise. Hang on to the truth till the end. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. Abide in Christ. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Long for the pure milk of the word, old man. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Pursue holiness so that no one will take your crown. As 3.11 states. You understand all those commands in Scripture are saying the same exact thing. They're basically saying, hold on to Christ. He's all that matters. This is the crown of victory that we will get. This is the crown that athletes received when they won. Hold on to what you have. What is that that we have? the gospel, the Lord Jesus. He's the one we have. 
He's the one we hold on to. He's the one we endure in. He's the one we enjoy, correct? He's everything to us. All I want from, for my birthday is to hold on till the end. That's all I want. I want to breathe my last, and I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all I want. Boy, it changes when you get older, what your birthday presents are, huh? All I truly want is to be faithful to the end. And I want to preach this word accurately till the last day. All I want. So we have seen the king's identity, the king's subjects. Last we see the king's promises. Oh, these are glorious promises, folks. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. King Jesus gives, all the way down to verse 12, he gives four promises to his faithful subjects. These are promises to hold on to if you are a faithful child of God. These are the ones to look to daily, constantly reminding yourself. Jesus promises in verse 9 first, a new authority. A new authority. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, when you first see that, you might think, wow, this is going to be cool. I'm going to have people bowing at me. But I guarantee you that's not what they were thinking. I guarantee you that's not what the church in Philadelphia was thinking. They had compassion on those that were persecuting them. But the point was this. What looks to be the authority in the world is not the authority in the end. Christ is king. People deny him. People say he's not real. People say that he's not Lord. People say that he's not sovereign. But he is sovereign. And one day he will show it. And those that are his own children. Those that have been persecuted. Those that have been maligned. They will be shown to be his children. And they will rule and reign with him. It appears these believers were suffering under the persecution of some Jews who had rejected their Messiah. They had called, they are called the synagogue of Satan, probably because of the, profess, the professing Jews in the area were obviously being controlled and led by Satan himself. Satan was behind the wickedness this, of these professing Jews and what they were per, perpetuating against the subjects of Jesus. Jesus made it clear that these Jews were Jewish in lineage only. Jesus makes it clear that the true Jews were more than Jewish in lineage alone. These Jews had obviously rejected their king. They were thus liars and not genuine. Whereas Jesus is described as true, these Jews were described as liars. Now listen to me. This is very important. I kind of talked to and alluded to this at the beginning. Remember I said that the contrast often demonstrates the glory of God when it's set against the contrast? This is one of these. 
you, you say sometimes, why in the world does God allow these kind of persecutions and these kind of things to happen in the world? Why does he do it? Well, you've got to remember there's an eternity coming. You've got to understand that the scripture makes it very clear that what looks to be winning now, eventually will be shown to be what? Under the feet of the Lord Jesus in judgment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The fact of the matter is, is what you see here is only, you see dimly through what's going to happen in eternity. King Jesus is going to be shown to be king of everything. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Most likely the Jews were in a position of authority and in the city and had rulership in some way. And these people were nobodies in the city. This must have made living in Philadelphia a real challenge for these Christians. These of the synagogue of Satan were probably much more powerful in the city. But in the end, Jesus makes it clear the roles will be reversed. <laughs> the weak ones will become the strong ones in Jesus' kingdom. Hold on, beloved. Your day is coming. Hold on. It may not be here. If this is your best life now, then you are in for a big trouble. You're probably going to have a role reversal coming up. Notice again, behold, I will cause. It says, behold, I will cause. Should be literally translated again. Behold, I will give. This is the king imposing his sovereign rulership over the enemies of his subjects. Again, the word give is avoided in all translations, just so, it's so it can be a little bit clearer to the reader. But the word give is perfect because it says the king gives what he wants. He's in control of what he wants and does. Notice also, I will make them. Again, Jesus is stating his royal decision for these enemies of his own. And by the way, he's telling it it's going to happen when? Before it happens. Can you tell what's going to happen before it happens? Only the sovereign Lord can. King Jesus can. And he did. And he, and he does. So what Christ promised, what's he promising? These unbelieving Jews were, who were most likely greatly persecuting the Gentile Christians like in the cities of Thessalonica and Pergamum and Smyrna will come and bow down at the feet of Christ's subjects who will reign with Christ in glory. This is most likely a reference to the great white throne judgment which will happen at the end of the thousand years. It's here that Christ's own will be revealed to be the ones who have rejected Jesus. They will be forced to bow down before Christ and his own. The genuine believers are including in this honor because we will be with him as his own. And again, I want to remind you and make sure you understand this. We're going to reign with Christ for one main reason. And what is that? Grace. Grace. It's not because we deserve to be ruling and reigning with Christ. If you took our lives before Christ and said, okay, I think I'll put that one reigning with me, none of us would be picked. We all deserve His judgment. We deserve to be under His feet. Instead, by His amazing grace, He chooses to have sinners like us Reign with Him. Wow, what a God, right? 
We are included in a future judgment on the world. 1 Corinthians 6.2 says, Do you not know that the holy ones will judge the world? Wow. Can you imagine? You feel like you could be a judge? Not me. I just want to be a street sweeper, as one said, in heaven. Again, this shows how much the way things are presently doesn't reveal what heaven will be like. Mark that down. Very much like the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, right? The poor receives the joy of the blessing of being in God's presence forever, and the rich man suffers agony and eternal torment in hell. How do we apply this? As we look at how things unfold here on earth, we may think survival of the fittest or the ones in power stay in power while the weak and the poor never get ahead or are always oppressed. This may be true now, but not forever. And when King Jesus comes back, things will be different. Now listen, this is not liberation theology. This isn't liberation theology in the sense that you follow Jesus and now you are going to be liberated from any kind of harsh treatment here in this world. You know what? Uh Uh-uh. It goes the other way. You come to Jesus and you're going to be persecuted in this world. It's going to be hard. I'm sorry. That's the way it is, but it's worth it because we get to shine for our king. We get to honor the king that bought us and was shamed for our name to help us. But one day, one day, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What is important is not your personal power here and now, but what is important is knowing the one who ultimately rules. That's what we've got to get. So this first promise deals with the, with the change in authority, from one who has little authority or power to the one who receives honor, having authority, because we know the real king. Notice, second, he promises a new security. Now, this is a hot topic here. I'm going to uh, post something online later on. You can read it. I couldn't get through it. It's like four sermons I could preach on this one little verse. But I'll just give you a, a summary. The promise has two elements here. Notice it says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. To test those who dwell on the earth. Notice it doesn't say test those who are in hell. Or the hour, that's an ongoing test. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world. So what in the world is this? Well, who's the promise for? Well, it's for the enduring ones, it says. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, right? But what's the promise? I will also keep you from the hour of testing. One of my professors at seminary that I highly respect gives several reasons why this is probably a reference to the pre-trib rapture. Uh-oh. Some of y'all in the room just cringed a little. But it's the truth. Look at the notes. There are three possible rapture positions. Here they are. You ready? There is no rapture. But what do you do with all the passages that allude to some kind of rapture? I'll keep you from this testing that's going to come on the world, or 1 Thessalonians 4. Second, a rapture of the church before the Great Tribulation. Third, a rapture of all believers at the end of the Great Tribulation. It's 
Some would call this the, quote-unquote, historic pre-mill view. If you study the tribulation period in Revelation 6 to 9, you will see just how much wrath God intends to pour out on the earth. If you read Revelation 6 to 19 in your study, you're going to see it's wrath, 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 and it's wrath of the Lamb. Now, let me ask you a question. Are believers supposed to face the wrath of the Lamb? It just doesn't make sense. Why would believers face the wrath of the Lamb? He took our wrath. And it gets very clear from this that he's talking about we will be kept from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell, dwell on the earth. It appears clear that he's not talking about the church, Philadelphia. And again, this is imminent. So he tells them, and it continues to be a promise for everybody in the church until the return of Christ. Wrath upon wrath upon wrath from God. Now, do we get tribulation? Yes, but it's not the same kind of tribulation. The emphasis is often from where? Satan, the enemy. Those are tribulations and trials. But in 6 to 9, guess who is the one that's pouring out the wrath? God, the Lamb, the one who breaks the seals. Some may say that the church is often said to expect trials. Well, why would that change? Well, the purpose of the tribulation is described as being part of the judgment on the world. Again, if that's what it's called, the judgment on the world, should we face God's judgment? Well, only if you don't believe in the atonement. Because if you believe in the atonement, our sins are atoned for, then we shouldn't be judged. We're not going to be judged. Christ was judged for us. So it makes perfect sense that Christ would keep his bride from the wrath to come, correct? I'm thankful for that. I don't know about you. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I am looking for Jesus Christ. To step out on the cloud, and I look forward to that day, and I, by God's grace alone, will not face his judgment on the world for seven years. The next promise we see Jesus makes clear. He says... A promise of a new residency. Jesus states, He will make the overcomer a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not possibly go outside any longer. This promise, like the other two, have two elements. The overcomer is promised a permanent place in the presence of God. Wow, what a promise, right? He obviously uses metaphorical language to compare the believer to a pillar in the temple. The pillar of the temple was considered a permanent part of the temple. The temple of my God points to the place of God's abode. And so we are promised what? That we'll be with God forever. Again, we've said this. We've said it over. And haven't we seen it throughout? What is the thing that keeps me going? What is the thing that keeps the Christian pursuing righteousness and holiness and enduring? What is it? It's the promise of heaven. It's the promise of being with our King forever of ruling and reigning with Him. These are the things that keep us going, right? It's that eternal perspective. And finally, there is the promise of a new identity. This one's just shocking. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God. In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. 
in my new name. It gives a threefold assurance to overcomers. I will write upon him the name. The name of my God. This probably points to the reality that a genuine believer will be identified and shown to be God's own. Oh, this reminds me of Romans chapter 8 where it says the, the creation groans with anticipation of the revelation of the redemption of God's children. I cannot wait for that day when it's, I'm identified by everyone. He is Christ's own. He's Christ. You know, in that city where the synagogue of Satan was and where prominence was with the Jewish people and these were the non-prominent people, you think that they were probably called the outcasts? Oh, you say you know Yahweh God? You say you follow Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You say you're with them? Nah, you're not one of us. One day, Jesus says, you will wear my name and everybody will know. You're my child. I can't wait for that day. It reminds me of the end of Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan calls out in uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe and he calls out the name of the four children and he places crowns on their head. He says, this one's mine. My daughter and my child. All who have genuinely trusted in Christ will one day be shown to fully be Christ. Second, it says the name of the city of my God. This points to being a member of the citizenship of the new Jerusalem. We will have citizenship in God's city. For these believers in Philadelphia, this is probably very encouraging. Most likely their status in their own city was not even recognized. They were probably outcasts in the city. Remember, a little power. But one day, these people will be identified with God's city. And the final mark is, is they will wear my new name, the full revelation of who Jesus is. Mm. Mm. Those are great thoughts to meditate on. The full glory of Jesus Christ revealed. And all of his splendor, all of his majesty, all of his holiness, all of who Christ is. And he will say, that one's mine. He wears my name, my fully revealed, glorious name. He's mine. Man, that makes me want to stand up and scream. I want to shout for Christ. I want to live for him. I want to honor him no matter what, right? At some point, we will have a full glimpse of our king. And the new name points to this coming new and full revelation of Jesus Christ. What makes heaven even more amazing is, is that we will be identified with this glorious one. All that we know about the glory of Jesus is only the beginning of what we will understand about him in, in, in glory. Do you understand I've studied this book for 22 years now. And I constantly see glorious glimpses of him. And how amazing and how powerful and how beautiful and how wonderful and how holy and how good he is. Do you understand that this whole book just becomes alive the moment we die or he comes back for us? It's the day we see him in all of his glory. 
If I asked for that, that, that could mean I could go to be with him this week. You know what? Mm, that's a tough choice. How about that for a birthday present? If it happens to me this week, just know that I got what I prayed for. I just want to see him, don't you? I just want to see him. I don't want power and popularity. I don't want big churches. I don't want nice cars. I don't want any of that junk in comparison. just want to be identified with King Jesus. Is that your hope? Is that your prayer? Does this message bring you encouragement or does it bring you fear? Let me ask you a question. When you see these kind of glories, does, do you really want to hold on to anything in this world? Oh, I'm just dying. i got to go watch a football game. <laughs> oh, please, give me that video game. It, it, it almost sounds foolish, doesn't it? I want to, oh man, I can't wait to get back to work so I can build this great career and I can be all, no, wow, I can be, who cares? I want a big house. No, I just want Jesus. This is when it's going to blow you away. You only come into the kingdom if he has chosen you. He's the sovereign. He's the one. You say in your heart, wait, 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 wait. Got to be my choice. Got to be my will. Be careful. If we get into the kingdom, it will be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Father, thank you for your grace, your kindness towards wretched sinners like us. Thank you, Father, for the promise of glory. Help us to be diligent to pursue you, to endure to the end, to hang on, to put off sin and put on Christ, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh God, take us. Take our lives. Let them be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. As the hymn goes. That You may be exalted in our lives. We praise Your name. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.